2: Welcome to Pod Save America. I'm Tommy Vitor.
3: I am Adisu Demessi.
2: John Favreau and Dan Pfeiffer. They're on vacation this week. So I invited two of the smartest people I know to join me on this episode. Adisu, you are co-hosting. It is so great to see you. Uh, And later, Heather McGee is going to join as our special guests.
3: This is an honor. It truly is an honor. You guys have built something special here. I feel like I'm in the presence of greatness.
2: Oh my God. Filling big
3: shoes, all that stuff. I won't guess you guys or John and Dan too.
2: That is insulting to them. No, I'm just (laughs) kidding. Uh, I'm saying this sincerely, I could not be more excited to talk with you about Joe Manchin. I can't believe that was a sincere (laughs) statement. So listeners, you know, you guys uh, have heard of on the show before. You know him. You love him. He ran Cory Booker's 2020 presidential campaign. He ran Governor Gavin Newsom's 2018 campaign. We're for Clinton, Obama, John Kerry, LeBron James, like all the biggest candidates and organizations. He's a great guy uh, and currently the founding principal of 50 plus one strategy. So we're gonna cover a lot today. We're gonna to start with the news that broke last night that Joe Manchin apparently has agreed to a deal on legislation that would address climate change, reduce the price of prescription drugs, extend Obamacare subsidies, and reduce the deficit. I'm genuinely still in shock that I said that out loud. <laughs> um Adisi, I, I skipped breakfast this morning because I'm gonna be eating some some old takes.
3: Yeah, tomorrow. exactly. Do I, not uh, do not find I hope there Lordy, I hope there are no tapes. Jesus because uh, yeah, it yeah. is uh
1: it is. A little uh, bit of whiplash. Turner. Yeah. You know, but you
3: know what? That's that's Capitol Hill for you. That's it's the sausage right. making of uh, of lawmaking sometimes. That's I right.
2: Guess. That's right. We're also going to talk about the midterms because they're fast approaching. Uh, the focus on abortion rights, the controversy over Democrats interfering in these primaries. By the way, listeners, if you want to get involved in the midterms, you want to volunteer, you want to donate, go to votesaveamerica.com slash 100 days. Take the pledge. We will make it easy for you. To get involved we're actually seeing um really excitingly high levels of signups we're going to beat our 2018 number uh by a lot so that's cool lastly adisa and i are going to cover reports that the justice department is investigating trump's actions as part of the january 6th probe and that pence aides are cooperating uh in this sort of sense that trump's standing is waning and then lastly in the show you'll hear heather uh she is the host of a fantastic new podcast called the Sum of us which you can find on spotify it is great she wrote a book by the same name we're going to talk about the pod Political movements, organizing, uh, and what she learned. So great stuff. So real quick before we get to the news, uh, if you love great coffee and you want to get it at a discount and you want to buy uh, coffee that delivers a portion of the proceeds to an amazing organization called Register Her, which helps register women across the country, go to crooked.com/coffee. You'll get twenty five percent off a subscription today. Also, we have an amazing new podcast out. It's called Another Russia. In 2015, Putin's number one public enemy and relentless critic, Boris Nemtsov, was shot and killed in front of the Kremlin in Another Russia. You will hear from his daughter, journalist Jana Nemtsova, and co-host Ben Rhodes. I know that guy. You will hear them tell Boris Nemtsov's story and, and answer the question or explore the question, is Another Russia possible, but another outcome have been possible. Listen to new episodes of Another Russia each Monday, wherever you get your podcasts. Okay, Adisu again, whoever thought we'd get this fired up about the Inflation Reduction Act of 2022. There we go. But but don't let that- Let's go, baby! (laughs) Don't let that name fool you. It does a lot of good stuff. Uh, This is the bill that Schumer and Manchin announced on Wednesday night. So here's the gist of it. Huge investment in climate change spending. $369 billion into energy security, climate provisions. The goal is reducing carbon emissions by an estimated 40% uh, from 2005 levels by 2030. Medicare can, will be able to negotiate the cost of certain prescription drugs, which would save the government like $300 billion over a decade. It caps the cost of prescription drugs uh, to $2,000 a year for a lot of seniors, extends Obamacare subsidies, and raises a ton of money by imposing a 15% minimum tax on big corporations, closes the carry interest loophole, and uh, uh, gives the IRS more resources so they can do their job. So I'll stop there. Adisu, I'm shocked. I'm I'm thrilled. What do you make of this bill? I know last night you were like texting all your climate, you know, expert friends and trying to figure this thing That's out. That's
3: <laughs> exactly what I was doing. Uh, you know, it, the, the deal was announced and suddenly you're like, what's in it? And you get the list and you just read it. It took like a minute, um, which, yeah. you know, is pretty impressive. It um, Look, I think, I, first of all, I spike no footballs until the president Me signs too. it same, uh i'm sure we'll same, talk same. about that right yes. still has to pass the house still has to actually pass the senate um yeah. uh, and obviously the president has to sign it but it's historic it actually is historic it's something you know the prescription drug pieces of this bill alone is something that democrats have been fighting for for decades Years. um yeah the you know climate provisions have been on again off again on again part of the bbb negotiations and what have you uh you know it's certainly not everything uh that anybody would have wanted, but that's what, that's what compromise is. Like we said before, that's what legislating mm-hmm. is. So I'm just, I, honestly, I'm still at awe. It's like, I'm a little bit speechless. I I'm praying that it's going to happen. It's a monumental feat. It's a monumental feat to do this with a zero seat majority in the Senate <laughs> and yeah. a, you know, four seat majority in the house if we get it done. But, um, but here True. we are, you know, it here we took, are. took a long time, but, uh, but here we are.
2: Here we are. I mean, yeah. And look, we we will um, offer all the sufficient caveats later in the show. It is a um, a massive lesson in expectations management because you know this bill was like three trillion, four trillion at the beginning, and then it got whittled down, and was and then we thought it was nothing, and now we're all thrilled again at, at what seems like we'll get past. But you know, a lot of people, myself very much included, have been trying to figure out what the hell happened, what changed. Because the bill, you know, it's not as expansive as those early sketches of Build Back Better, but it's pretty similar to recent proposals that Manchin had rejected because he said, oh, this will lead to more inflation. So based on some of the reporting we've seen so far, it sounds like this is what changed. Um, A bunch of outlets today say that former Treasury Secretary Larry Summers called Joe Manchin and convinced him that the bill would not lead to inflation. So I guess it's it's now a liberal hero, little icon (laughs) Larry Summers. Like, thank you, Larry.
3: Thank
2: you. Uh, Uh, Democrats- (laughs) Yeah, Sure. Democrats also have to pass a separate bill that's going to ease permitting for pipelines and other energy infrastructure. So that will be, I'm sure, controversial. That will piss off a lot of people. But, you know, the energy experts I see quoted say that short term pain will be well worth the long term impact of the climate pieces of the bill. And then finally, Mitch McConnell had threatened to tank something called the CHIPS Act if Democrats passed anything through Reconciliation, which is how this Manchin bill would pass. The Chips Act is this massive China competitiveness bill that passed earlier this week. That bill passed yesterday, and then Manchin makes this announcement. So, Adisi, do we think, like, did Schumer and Manchin do something pretty gangster here and bluff Mitch McConnell into letting this thing pass?
3: I am not sitting in uh, rooms on Capitol Hill, so I don't know, but it looks pretty gangster. (laughs) Um, And, you know, the timing is, if nothing else, somewhat uh coincidental let's say that an hour yeah. after uh chips passes the senate i think maybe even less than that this bill gets announced but um you know that's that's chuck schumer has taken a lot of shit. i think mm-hmm. uh for on again off again of bbb president biden has taken some of it as well but this is not a linear process, man. If there's anything I learned in 09 and 10, you were there too, during the the ACA negotiations and everything else that happened uh, in the first two years of the Obama presidency. This is not linear. This is not something where it's like you start here and you end end at point B. It is two steps forward, six steps back, around in a circle, around the corner and back again. And I think, you know, you got to give the the leader credit, and you got to give Mansion credit for yes, even if he had some you know issues with the way it happened, and he got pissed off at various times, and I'm sure that the White House and all of us got pissed off as well. Like <laughs> came back to the table and did it, and that is just the ugly reality of making laws, and especially making laws when you have a zero seat majority in the in the Senate.
2: That's exactly right. Yeah, I, a, a big bill like this is going to die a thousand deaths before it becomes law. Um, hopefully it becomes law. So yeah, look, hand up. I was wrong about Joe Manchin. I thought he never wanted these climate revisions to pass at all. I mean,
3: to be fair, he kind of said it publicly on many, <laughs> many occasions. Right. He's he's changed his tune publicly, but some of that is posturing. Yeah. Right. But so you're not sure you have to eat some crow, but you know, it was it was fairly served yeah. at the time, I guess.
2: Yeah, I mean, look, I will note that this very painful process, this negotiation uh, benefited one Democrat and one Democrat alone politically in his name is Joe Manchin. But again, I, you know, I spent most of Tuesday uh, researching what would happen to the planet if there's drilling in the Congo, what that would do to the climate change? So I'm, I'm happy. Thank you, Joe Manchin. Thank you. You're the best senator ever. I love you. I'm grateful <laughs> to you. Okay. Clip and save that one uh, <laughs>
3: for, <laughs> for a future episode of Puzzle. Oh,
2: shit. So before we get too excited, here, let's throw some cold water on this whole thing and talk about all the ways it could unravel. So like you just mentioned, Manchin could change his mind. He, he's done that before. Um, the parliamentarian is back, the parliamentarian will need to review the bill, make sure a vote gets scheduled, make sure that it's kosher through that, uh, through the, that process. Um, and no Democrats can die between now and then that's important. <laughs> <laughs> joking, but not joking. I mean,
3: yeah, fair.
2: Yeah. Yeah. You, you, that makes you think, doesn't it? Um, Kyrsten Cinema is not a yes yet. Yes. Uh, and she is That is, is the
3: biggest, the, I think, question mark still not a huge fan, uh, of so, the tax measures we don't think
2: don't you think, I mean, look, she's opposed to the carried interest, closing the carried interest loophole in the past. That's a pay for that I think would get the government like $14 billion over the the decade. Um, Don't you think she must be just under overwhelming political pressure to support this? I mean, Arizona is not West Virginia, right? Yeah,
3: exactly. And uh, I think the answer is yes. Uh, And I think it's, you know, it's one thing when you've got mansion uh you know over here talking about inflation in the spending side and you have cinema on the other side talking about the revenue side but when one of those legs of the stool is, is cut out suddenly mm-hmm. uh it becomes a little harder to stand on an island so my guess and again just a guess is that th- there were conversations before the deal was announced with senator cinema's office but we'll see you know the the. Again, I am not. I'm counting nothing, (laughs) no chickens, right? And uh, until until it's public and until the vote is taken, um, all bets are off. But uh, but yeah, I think she's under tremendous pressure, and and you know she doesn't want to be the the 51st vote against this thing. No no senator does. It was one thing to be 52. It's another thing to be 51.
2: I mean, I'll never forget. You know, my couple years on Capitol Hill, you would see votes held open for hours and hours and hours because no one wanted to be the final vote passing something controversial or the final vote that killed something controversial. Yeah, exactly. And you're right. Manchin is no longer giving her any cover. We also need um, Democrats in the House to stick together and pass the CHIPS Act, the, the China competition bill, where things to get a little funky because Pelosi initially was planning to pass it with Democratic and Republican votes. Some liberals don't love the bill. They say it's corporate welfare. And I think there's a fair arguments made there. But now, Kevin McCarthy and the Republican leadership—they're uh, whipping Republicans to vote against the they bill. They are sh-
3: throwing a hissy fit, is what they're doing.
2: <laughs> <laughs> hissy fit. Okay. So, Adisu, imagine you're a moderate Republican. You probably said that this bill is important. You've you've talked about it. You know the importance of standing up to China. You're on the record, and then all of a sudden you vote against it because Democrats were mean and they passed a bill that cut prescription drug costs. Like that's the fight they want to
3: pick. Yeah. It. It's totally it's a tantrum it really is it's a tantrum it's a political tantrum and like you said i think this is one of those rare issues where you can have your cake and eat it too politically meaning you get the policy if 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 and when the speaker can hold the uh you know the caucus together this thing passes and uh, and the president signs it and you get the politics which is every republican voting against something that is good politics, right? Yeah. Uh, the, the China competitiveness pieces of it are great politics uh, looking mm-hmm. ahead to the midterm. So it is, I don't know if this hissy fit is going to sustain through the vote. Maybe it is, but maybe it's posturing, but yeah, I'm bring it on is what I say. If this is what yeah. they want to do, if they want to vote against uh, a China competitiveness bill three months before an election, because they're mad about Chuck Schumer outmaneuvering them, like, be my
2: guest. Sure, sure. Yeah. I mean, look, I, I will say something stupid is in the water over there on the Republican side because a bunch of it's Republicans. It's Donald
3: Trump. <laughs>
2: <laughs> <laughs> that is very true. Yeah. But a bunch of Republicans just voted against a bill that would help millions of veterans exposed to toxic burn pits while serving in Iraq and Afghanistan. They just switched their votes. This thing passed 84 14 in June, and then 25 Republicans switched their votes so to go vote against it. It's nuts. So. Adesu, like well before this mansion News, you and I were talking about how there have been some more like hopeful signs out there for Democrats and how we might fare in the midterms. Um, A bunch of polls have found Democrats doing well in the generic congressional ballot. There was a poll this morning, USA Today Suffolk, that has Democrats leading 4440 on the generic ballot. Uh, Democrats are understandably furious and fired up about the Supreme Court overturning Roe versus Wade. Vice President Kamala Harris is out on the road meeting with governors, state legislators, candidates, and like pressing the case about Republican extremism. So, you know, look, again, we don't do predictions on the show because we suck at it, but, yeah. and we don't want to sound too hopeful, right? Because yeah. there's still inflation and, you know, GDP came in this morning and shrank in the second quarter. We might be in a recession. But what what do you think, what do you think is happening here? Like, why are these generic numbers going up in your mind?
3: Um, I think... Yeah, Democrats are in array for, mm-hmm. you know, the first time mm-hmm. in a little bit of <laughs> a little bit of time. It does feel good. Um, and like you said, whether it's enough to withstand uh, the headwinds that are first presidential midterms is an open question. But I think it's a couple things. I think some of it is just about candidates. Right. Right. Um, we have really good candidates and we are nominating really good candidates across the board. We have strong incumbents in the Senate at governor's races, secretary of state's Mm -hmm. races, um, Whitmer, uh, Warnock. I mean, you name it, good fits for their state, good fits for their districts. um, uh, You name it. Uh, And on the flip side, you know, Republicans are not everywhere, but generally speaking, nominating their least electable. I think we're going to talk more about this, coming up, but they're least electable candidates because they are they're nominating far right crazy people. And so that is affecting, I think, this generic ballot in the national conversation because it's reasonable Democrat or good Democrat up against lunatic fringe Republican. And then I think I think you hit the nail on the head. The other thing is galvanizing events. You know, it is um, Dobbs and the fall of Roe is at the top of that list. But you've got Uvalde and Buffalo, the Mm -hmm. um, you know, the KBJ confirmation, it's, it's actually with the glaring exception of the pandemic war and inflation, <laughs> it has actually yeah. been, you know, Democrats are doing pretty, uh, have done some good things over the last couple of months. And the things that have happened to us have been, we have taken advantage of politically speaking in, uh, 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 showing people exactly what the stakes are in the election. So you put those things together: good, can, good Democratic candidates, bad Republican candidates, or unelectable ones, or crazy ones, with sort of just a change in circumstance, and you've got a pretty, you know, a decent chance to have a better midterm than we would have thought, even even two or three months ago.
2: Yeah, I look. I agree. I mean, money can't buy you a win necessarily. But I mean, I do think it's an indication of enthusiasm. And ActBlue said small dollar donors gave 20.6 million on the day row was overturned. The DLCC said their two best online fundraising days were in the 48 hours after the decision. We at Vote Safe America saw a big spike in signups. So it really does matter. I mean, you you kind of hit on a big strategic question that is out there. And it's a constant debate for Democrats of like, should we focus on kitchen table issues, jobs, healthcare, all the things that we're hoping will pass into law through this Mansion Compromise, or should we be talking more about January sixth, the ongoing threat to democracy, and these extreme candidates you mentioned? Do you have a take yeah, on that?
3: I, I definitely do, because I think, I think it's a bit of a false choice. I think it's about, it's about the framing on the whole. I think, and so if I had to pick one, I think it's the latter, because I think what we have to do is define the threat. This election, mm-hmm. you know, midterm elections are generally a referendum on the state of the country and the party in power. And the more we can do to turn this into a choice election, the better. And, you know, the reality is I I, wa- I want to run on kitchen table issues and, you know, jobs and all of those things. And I think the Biden administration and Democrats have a good case to make. I just talked about the things that we've done um, just in the last couple of months, not to mention ARP and infrastructure and mm-hmm. uh, and what happened last year. but Let's be real about the state of the country. <laughs> Gas is $450 a gallon, milk is three dollars right. a gallon, people are getting COVID again. There's a there's a hot land war in Europe. Like yep. voters are just not going to believe that things are good because they're they're not, even though yeah, we're the, making them better.
2: The um track's pretty high at the moment. Yeah,
3: it just is, right? And so live in the world as it is. And so you have to meet the voters where they are, and that means you gotta define the threat, define the enemy. Um, and so whether that's about January 6th or about you know, you've you've seen the work that's being done out there to frame MAGA Republicans. I think it's very good. I'm sure we'll talk about that a little bit more um, as the enemy, but whether it's about health care or, you know, protecting their wealthy friends or taking away choice or overturning the will of the people on January 6, you got defining the enemy and lifting them up and turning this into a choice election instead of a uh, a, uh, a referendum election, I think is job number one. That's what allows you to talk about Kitchen table issues. Otherwise, folks aren't going to listen to us.
2: Yeah, it's they'll tune you out. I mean, so Dan isn't here today, which is tough for me because I like to take things he says on the Thursday pod and then steal them and uh, pass them off as my own ideas. But you know, you you mentioned that you're you're a reader of Dan's Substack message box, um, and in that Substack, Dan pitched the idea of Democrats running on the American Freedom Agenda, which is basically like okay, let's say you take a bunch of economic proposals that give you financial freedom, like a $15 minimum wage, the child tax credit, et cetera. You have a bunch of personal freedoms like abortion rights, marriage equality, gun safety laws, and then democratic freedoms like voting rights, ending dark money in politics, ethics reform. You like that pitch? You like that framing? You're a subscriber? I am.
3: am, (laughs) uh, You should read message message box. Uh, Maybe that'll that'll get me invited back uh, when Dan gets (laughs) off vacation. But no, I love it. I love it for a lot of reasons. and I'm glad, Dan, and I know there are folks like Way to Win and Anat Shankar Osorio, who on Twitter and others who are who've done a lot of work pushing this freedom frame, which I think, I think it works. I think it works for, I think it works for a lot of reasons. So, first off, I know it works with voters. <laughs> I've seen polling and, and data that that suggests that this is actually something that moves voters. Um, in sort of a mobi suasion way, right? Both mobilization and persuasion.
0: Ooh, mobi like suasion. Mobi suasion. You like that? Yeah. That is um,
3: good. That is, that is pretty good. Shout out to Anat. That's hers, not mine. Um, second, I think it co opts a GOP frame, which I always love doing. Um, you know, freedom is generally seen as a Republican issue, but it shouldn't be, right? Right. It's um, invading Iraq. It's, yeah, exactly. Exactly. And I think we can actually co opt it maybe if I have a little tweak to Dan's message. It's about freedoms, right? The the our freedoms are under attack, the freedom to and the freedom from. But um but it's but I like the idea of co-opting a GOP message and not just have it be about, you know, liberty, being able to do whatever the hell you want, whenever the hell you want with your AK um, 47. The third I think is actually really important is in this window that we're in right now, post Dobbs um and post row, it's it feels uh, salient, right? Like we're in a yeah, persuasion really window <laughs> yeah. about freedom, right? Freedoms are under attack. And we have a very yeah. specific example of that that is mobilizing, as you said before, our base and also persuadable voters to be like, wait a second, what what's on the ballot this fall? Um, but maybe most importantly, the freedom agenda or however freedoms agenda, however we want to talk about it, it it can fit into anything right you can talk about freedom from you can talk about freedom to you can talk about the economy to your earlier question you can talk about freedom from gun violence freedom to vote freedom to choose freedom to marry it it's universal it can be used by progressives and moderates alike it can you know it can push us to talk about what we're for and what we're against and that lo- that's what a message is like you want the flexibility to have everybody in your big tent use it use it for their purposes but something that appeals broadly so I'm in. If it's if it's not right. clear, I think there's something to be done there.
2: I, I like it. We're all in on Dan. Um, we're all in on message box. So put Dan last, in charge
3: of uh, Democratic messaging. And uh...
2: honestly, <laughs> look, don't tell him I said this, but we got to we got to fire him from this podcast. So he goes and works on campaigns. Yeah, again, okay. because he's, he's the smartest person I know on this stuff. So last midterm issue, like we we talked on this pod a couple of times about. The consternation over the Democratic Party boosting the more extreme candidates in Republican primaries in the hopes of running against them. Um, I would say the controversy, the anger was measured until this week when it was reported that the DCCC spent a bunch of money boosting a far right Trump loving candidate named John Gibbs, who's running against a Republican incumbent in Michigan, Michigan's third congressional district named Peter Meyer. Meyer voted to impeach Trump. Uh, after January 6th. He's called out other Republicans who pushed the election lie. And people are saying, you know, hey, DCCC, you are saying there's this massive threat to democracy, that there's this crisis, and uh, you're boosting this Looney Tunes guy who might get elected, who was tweeting John Podesta had taken part in oh, a God. satanic ritual of, <laughs> you know, yeah. previously. Well, what do you I, think here about this controversy and this I'm strategy?
3: curious what you think, because look, I'm a practitioner of politics. So like, I get the strategy. I'm sure everybody here does too, right? You, you're you making it more likely for you to win in the general. And I think the folks at the D-TRIP or the DGA or wherever, the camp- campaigns themselves who are looking at data, I am certain they have data that shows that John Gibbs is a weaker opponent than Peter Meyer in November. But weaker doesn't mean can't win, right? And that right. Is the, that's where the consternation is. And so, you know, I, I'm not clutching my pearls about it personally frankly mm-hmm. i ran this strategy in 2018 oh, yeah, <laughs> for really? newsom right like uh, yeah. trump trump uh, uh endorsed one of our republican opponents california has a top two primary where you could have two democrats move or or whoever top two whatever the party and uh when trump endorsed one of our opponents we started attacking that opponent for having trump's endorsement mm-hmm. which happened to elevate him into second we beat his ass in in november so <laughs> sure uh, but california is not western michigan right and so I don't know i'm curious what you think because i'm i'm i don't clutch my pearls about it because ultimately if we if it works it is maybe in some of these districts the only way we're going to win these districts in this kind of environment but it's a high risk high reward thing and uh, people willing to risk having john gibbs in congress i get why you might not want to do that
2: yeah i get i get why you might not want to do that too i'm kind of with you in that like to me it's case by case i was not too worried about you know larry hogan's hand-picked successor in maryland losing that primary uh, to a, a kookier opponent that the Democrats think we can beat. Because as Larry Hogan himself said, Governor, uh, the Republican governor of Maryland was like, well, this campaign is now over, which is, you know, it's yeah. nice to hear for us. I do worry a little bit in a more swingy district yeah. like Michigan's third. I also do worry about the broader message and the hypocrisy. Yeah that you could take away from boosting someone like John Gibbs as we are, I think, sincerely talking about this massive threat to democracy. And Peter Meyer has tried to do the right thing. Um, And that is hard for me emotionally, intellectually to kind of wrap my head around. But I
3: actually agree with that last part that Peter Meyer, who I don't think should be a congressman, I want his Democratic opponent to beat him, whoever, if he wins the primary next week. But Mm -hmm. as Republicans go, there are other Republicans who are Way worse on issues For of democracy sure. and these these For issues, sure. right? And so, um, you know, maybe in open seats or in places where you have a a, a a less palatable Republican, it feels like a more palatable strategy. But that's not politics, man. Politics ain't beanbag. And yeah. if you know, if we want a Democrat to win that seat, yeah, yeah, you play to win the game, as that's uh, right. as Herman
2: Edwards
0: once said. <laughs> Okay,
2: let's talk more about the uh, the kooky Republicans that are out there because there's been a lot of news on the MAGA side. So on Tuesday... The Washington Post broke the news that the Justice Department is investigating Donald Trump's actions as part of its criminal probe into efforts to overturn the 2020 election results. Uh, Witnesses before the grand jury, including deliciously uh, Mike Pence's aides, have been asked about their conversations with Trump, his lawyers, their inner circle and the degree to which Trump himself was involved in the fake elector scheme. DOJ is also looking at phone records of top Trump officials. I, this is another hands up moment for me, uh, Adisu. Like I vented a little bit of frustration uh, about the speed or lack thereof of DOJ's investigation and Merrick Garland's work here. So it's good to see they're they're on it. But what what do you make of the timing of these reports coming out right as Pence and Trump seem to kind of go head to head on some you know at some events.
3: I mean look you're the press guy like who is leaking this <laughs> where is it co- uh, which side has the has the incentive to to put this out there or, or get this out there because it seems
2: very pency yeah it
3: does seem pency uh but i can't give a profile encourage award to any of these people <laughs> for doing this right and even even if the outcome is uh you know something that we both want um they spent 5 years ass kissing an authoritarian to get close to power so like great sure. now that you want to be president or uh you're you're doing the right thing great i guess the enemy uh, you know the enemy, enemy, is your enemy. enemy is your friend or whatever sure, yeah. um so i got to tip my hat yeah, yeah. and then you know hold my hold hold my nose
2: <laughs> you you don't get a cookie for telling the truth in you front of yeah, exactly. great and,
3: and i think doj i will say doj i think I similarly, as a partisan Democrat, like have those same frustrations, but I do think deliberateness will win out here. I do. I really believe that. I think you got to have it airtight, and you know, this is part. It's a process. I'm a lawyer. Like, you don't come out until until you you have it locked stock, and barrel. Um, yeah, so that's. Well, this is part of that process.
2: Okay, that's good legal advice. I did love the, um, the New York Times. Also, had another great story. Uh, Maggie Haberman had. A bunch of Trump campaign emails, including messages from a different lawyer in Arizona uh, who is helping the campaign with their you know, effort to send a fake slate of electors to Washington for their little coup attempt. And in one of the emails, <laughs> this lawyer in Arizona literally wrote, quote, we would just be sending fake, put that in quotes too, electoral votes depend so that someone, again in quotes, in Congress can make an objection when they're counting votes and start arguing that the fake votes be counted. Wait, a so, lawyer
3: sent that? Yeah, Jack
2: Willenchick.
3: Wow,
2: yeah, this was this guy bored. Don't F. hire
3: Stein. Jack uh-
2: <laughs> I mean Okay, it gets better. Adiso. In a follow up, he wrote, "Alternative votes is probably a better term than fake votes," and included a smiley face. So I think that absolves him of your previous legal criticism. Yeah, right? it's
3: true. He he tempered it. Oh my god, I missed that. That is that is insane. The E yeah. in email stands for evidence. Willie Brown said that once. <laughs> uh, <laughs> like, what are you doing, man? These folks are the Keystone cops if there ever was one. Um,
2: truly, truly. Boris Epstein, the guy who got the email, is uh, uh, Steve Bannon's marble mouth podcast co host. So he's quite a goober. A um, but so, like, you know, back to this Pence Trump thing, like, I have been surprised at how fast the rhetoric has dialed up. Um, here's a clip for everybody to hear. This is former Pence chief of staff, Mark Short. He's on CNN. He gets played a clip from Trump superfan creep, Matt Gates, and then Short is asked to respond to it. Let's listen.
1: Well, I don't know if Mike Pence will run for
2: president in 2024, but I don't think Matt Gates will have an impact on that. In fact, I'd be surprised if he was still voting. It's more likely he'll be in prison for child sex trafficking by 2024. And I'm actually surprised if Florida law enforcement still allows him to speak to teenage conferences like that so I'm not too worried about Matt Gates thanks okay <laughs> <laughs> the, thanks
3: did he drop a wow. thanks at the end uh, or did he say thanks
2: I don't know, know whatever that thanks, was, thanks.
3: That, was a, that was a quality uh outro by
2: that was a broadside that was a broad look I mean it, look, that's fun to hear I, I don't think for a second that pence is going to be president or that Pence could could beat Trump and head that contest but the fact that Pence thinks there's an opening to go after Trump does suggest they think he's weakened maybe by time, maybe by January 6th. Who knows? There's also the fact that Rupert Murdoch's media empire has turned on Trump. You got the Wall Street Journal attacking him in editorials. The New York Post editorial page wrote, as a matter of principle, as a matter of character, Trump has proven himself unworthy to be this country's chief executive again. I mean, do you do you buy this growing sort of consensus that he's been weakened?
3: I do. I think the January 6th hearings have done work on him not with the voters necessarily but with political elites in the republican party um you know i think january 6 itself did at the time yeah, too. Uh, you know not kevin mccarthy or people who are sycophants who just want to be close to power and have no moral compass whatsoever not that rupert murdoch does either but um but yeah i think i think things have changed um and i think but i think there is a divide between the voters and the the you know the elites as i said the folks who are um uh the donors the the chattering class etc the the voters i think are still with him the the base mm-hmm. of the republican party right but the donors and the and uh, and the elites realize that he is weak with basically everybody else not basically everybody else he is weak with everybody else For he sure. is weak yeah. with he, you know he he motivates democrats to turn out independents still hate him and even though things are You know tough in this country right now with pandemic and inflation and war um they don't want him back right uh they may want to change but they don't want him back right so it's an interesting there that uh dichotomy that we keep seeing in these primaries where like the mega candidates are winning primaries and mega republicans still running the party from the grassroots but the elites are like trying to push back and um i think that's only going to get nastier as we get closer to 2024 um and god the 2024 republican presidential primaries i do think there will be a competitive primary and i think it's going to be just a bloodbath
2: Um, i mean if the 2022 uh cable hits are mark short saying what he just said (laughs) yeah it's going to be a bloodbath i mean I agree with you that, like, you know, the Wall Street Journal editorial page, that is the donor class talking to the donor class and saying, yo, Ron DeSantis does not bring all this baggage. The other story, though, that I think will hit, like, the MAGA base that I've been tracking kind of closely is the f- the families of the victims of the 9-11 attacks are furious at Trump because his Bedminster course is hosting the Saudi-owned Live Golf Tour oh, yeah. this weekend. And, they like, he's getting a huge... Bag for this thing, like probably, you know, tens, if not hundreds of millions of dollars in Trump's pocket from the Saudis. But, you know, these 9 11 families, they're furious. They released a TV ad attacking Trump and the players. Um, And I think, like, I just think this is a tough one for Trump because this is his city. You know, the New Yorkers, this is his hometown. And the people this will piss off are like NYPD, you know, New York firefighters, Staten Island people. Yeah, Staten Island people. Absolutely. So,
3: yeah, I agree. I think. The, the one of the biggest myths of politics of the last five years is that Trump is Teflon. He's not Teflon. <laughs> He's Teflon with base mega Republican voters, which is right. not even close to a majority of voters in this country um, and pro- ma- probably a majority of Republicans, but not not even an overwhelming majority of Republicans. Right. So there is he is uh, it's not that the emperor has no clothes, but uh, the. He has a lot fewer clothes than, than people make it out to be. And one of his biggest strengths, honestly, is they can get people like us and Maggie and everybody else to keep talking about him, even as his power wanes, which I think it is.
2: For sure. Now, one other weird story. The emperor might be kind of a wimp. So Trump's <laughs> son-in-law slash former top advisor, Jared Kushner, has a book coming out. It's leaking. The Washington Post got a copy. And Jared in this book goes hard at the former White House chief of staff, John Kelly, um, and even says that after a contentious Oval Office meeting, Kelly like storms out of the Oval and is walking down the hallway and Ivanka Trump says hi to him and he shoves her out of the way, like hip checks her. I don't know. I, I imagine her like bouncing off the wall. According to this book, Trump does nothing about this. Like uh, your chief of staff Assaults shoves your daughter. your daughter in the office and you do nothing. You confirm it in a book three years later, like that's your tough guy president.
3: Yeah, I, I mean, <sighs> they're serial liars first of all so like
2: yeah uh, who do you believe it, here i
3: don't think it happened that's not a defense of john kelly or anything it's just that it, it's like i would call it a bravo reality show but that's like an insult to bravo sorry bravo don't <laughs> sue me for uh defamation but th- what the trump orbit jared kushner included is good at is manufacturing drama for clicks and sales and not even good at sales because like <laughs> these books yeah. aren't selling very well but no they are not but this is this is straight out of the Trump playbook which is say something inflammatory to get attention um and I just don't buy it if I'm being honest I'm take let's just say I'm taking it with a shaker of salt uh yeah. that, that it happened
2: I mean uh, the leakiest white house in history the sort of juiciest story you could imagine and this just comes out now that that does seem Come sort of hard to believe um last thing on, along these lines so the, the politico reported out that there's a big fight between these former Trump aides who landed at competing think tanks uh, that are supposed to be like the government and waiting for the MAGA types. One is called the America First Policy Institute or AFPI. It's like Rick Perry, former Homeland Security Secretary who uh, Ben Rhodes likes to call frat paddle Chad, which I love. Um, <laughs> Lou Holtz, former Notre Dame coach, Lou Holtz is part of it for some reason. is part, sure part of
3: a policy effort?
2: <laughs> I'm sure he's cranking out white papers. I'm yeah, like, uh, like the the nickel package or something. Um, but there's also like the conservative policy institute, the Heritage Foundation. They all think they're the MAGA movement. And so Trump spoke at AFPI on Tuesday, but it was only, it only came after Peter Navarro, that former trade advisor, batshit crazy guy, begged him not to and accused the think tank of plotting to a coup uh trumpism without trump coup so it's impossible to like follow these ins and outs but again it's just like uh, chaos has followed this guy everywhere he's gone politically since the very beginning but it's just not a great setup to have your your staff like crucifying each other like yeah
3: exactly well first of all give me a fucking break that trump has a policy agenda
2: um i know i
3: (laughs) I come on um and, you know, these what these folks are really jockeying for is proximity to somebody who is probably at this moment, the most likely Republican to be president if a Democrat doesn't win next time. So it's all about jockeying for proximity to power, not about policy, period. And so what they're what they're jockeying over is what is, in my mind, Trump's like core governing philosophy, which is the last person who got to talk to him wins, <laughs> uh, you yeah, know, wins right. is by wins the opinion. And. Um, And it's a mess, just like everything else, just like his White House was a mess, just like his campaign was a mess, uh, uh, just like his administration was a mess. And so it's one of the reasons he should never be allowed anywhere close to anything resembling power uh, over policy in this country is because, I mean, look, he's a wannabe authoritarian lunatic, but he also can't run like a dishwasher, let alone uh, (laughs) a country. Uh, And this is yet another yet another uh, uh, proof point of that.
2: So his his aides tried to call it like uh, the State of the Union 5.0. I don't I, I don't know why they did the point0 sort of a weird techie thing, but like to suggest that like this is what the speech he would have delivered. Here's a quick you know supercut of, of some of the Trump message from this hefty policy speech like the State of the Union.
3: Millions of illegal aliens are stampeding across our wide open borders. Our streets are riddled with needles and soaked with the blood of innocent victims stabbings rapes murders bloody turf wars rage without mercy sadists who prey on children drugged out lunatics roving mobs of thieves and the dangerously deranged romar streets with impunity blood death and suffering beat him like you've never seen anyone beaten before laughing as they bludgeoned a life dead stabbed her repeatedly as she screamed for help and left her bleeding to death and he was bludgeoned absolutely bludgeoned and shot burglarized raped murdered and set on fire viciously stabbed to death
1: okay
2: (laughs) okay that's good (laughs) that's enough we actually we had to call it before the clip was over uh that's a look that's a hopeful optimistic vision for the second term right
3: sounds like sounds like the first inaugural honestly uh (laughs) um and hopefully the last inaugural yeah i mean It's the only playbook they got, man. It's the only playbook they got. Scare, 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 fear, fear, fear. Everything is terrible. Everything is awful. It will appeal to some people, right? It will. But is that, first of all, it's not a policy agenda. And second of all, it is uh, certainly not a hopeful message that I think inspires the people who already hate him to suddenly want him back in the White House.
2: No. And uh, uh, Andy, our our excellent producer here, pointed out that. Interesting that he keeps talking about stabbings because you can't talk about guns or gun control or the mass shootings mm. that are happening all over the country. Wow. Yeah, it is, you know, look, I think that um, Pence is a... Look, Mark Short obviously uh, brought his baseball bat to a TV interview and that was interesting. But Mike Pence's critique of Trump is like, we're going to look toward the future, not the past. And that's his way of saying shut up about 2020. And uh, I don't know. I don't know that it's pointed enough to really work. I'm hoping... Some folks will lean a little harder into this and be like, "You lost. You're a loser." You say that Joe Biden has dementia. You lost to him. You know, like that. What to me is what we need to hear. I no, agree.
3: Guys. We have to be less outraged at some level and more um, mocking, uh, mm-hmm. you know, humor is and and derision. I think is a underused tactic when it comes to Trump. It's not like we we don't have to get in the locker room with him, but um, but yeah, he's a loser and yeah. he lost. And you know, I do think the president you know, whenever he refers to him now, he refers to him as the defeated former president, which I, I know that. has got to get under his skin at bedminster Mar-a-Lago. And I love it.
2: I love it too. Yeah. We we definitely need like the um, John Fetterman tone against Dr. Oz. That's exactly like, right.
3: It's a, I think it's a brilliant strategy. I think we were, we have been outraged rightly so for f- seven years, longer than that, but certainly for seven years since Donald Trump came on the scene, but you know what, as a political strategy, it may be worn out (laughs) right now, uh, especially with the, you know, persuadable voters and we may need to need to switch tactics.
2: Yeah. Especially when it's so clear that these guys just trot out to whatever event they're going to say something they know will outrage us. Like Matt Gaetz, uh, you know, suggesting that, you know, unattractive women don't need like, it's just not even worth repeating, but it's like, he wanted liberal clicks and rage, clickbait and, we, we, do can't, have to we can't
3: we can't fall for it yeah we can't fall for it every single time it, it is it is warranted sometimes it certainly was warranted a lot more when trump was in office and had for sure. power over over the administration but now it is a political strategy that they're running they don't have any power <laughs> uh, uh you know within the government but they're trying to provoke us and we have to be better, yep. better than that
2: yeah they got money in the media and our attention and we got to steal it back uh adisu it was absolutely fantastic having you on for the news today i really appreciate it you are you know you've won some big races um which is not something i've done in like a, a decade <laughs> so it's really good to hear your experience Thank i appreciate you. it
3: it's so much fun to be here thanks for inviting me Now
2: we are going to take a quick break and when we come back you will hear my interview with heather mcgee about her fantastic new podcast the sum of us so stick around the fantastic new podcast, The Sum of Us, which is available on Spotify. You can also buy her book by the same name, The Sum of Us Anywhere Books Are Sold. Heather, it's great to see you again.
1: Great to see you too, Tommy.
2: So we've known each other for for years, for decades, really. You have did all this uh, amazing policy development work in DC. You wrote this amazing book, you come on the show, you geeked out about it. You decided to get into the podcast game <laughs> and you were like, higher ground? I, I assume Obama and Springsteen are on episode three, which is not out yet. Is Is that what's going on here? <laughs>
1: Oh, my gosh! I should have known I should have been prepared for the uh for the dig at not going with Crooked for mm-hmm. this podcast. Mm-hmm. Listen, Tommy, this podcast, the Some of us, is about the possibility of hope and people coming together across race to build solidarity and win change. It is a hope and change podcast.
2: Mm -hmm. Um, I hope Obama gave you good notes (laughs) and that it was worth it. I'm I'm totally kidding. I'm totally kidding. You also got to work with uh, a woman we love at Crooked Media, Mukta Mohan, who got poached by higher ground. But anyway, I'll move on. So, I love the podcast. The first two episodes are out now on Spotify. And I love Thanks. talking with you generally because mm-hmm. you are a hopeful person. Yeah. I feel like hope has kind of fallen out of fashion these days. Oh, yeah. There's lots to be cynical about in the world, but sometimes the internet treats the most cynical takes as kind of gospel. Yeah. I think we end up demoralizing ourselves, suppressing our own votes. So that's right. starting with a little hope here, what did you make of this big announcement today that Manchin and Schumer have come together on a compromise bill. It does a lot on climate change, prescription drug costs, et cetera, et cetera. What do you make of this thing?
1: Taxes. Yeah. I mean, listen, the conventional wisdom had been that this was dead, that the democracy of one of a senator in West Virginia had basically killed our hope at saving life as we know it on the planet. And, you know, although it's easy to feel like in a really distorted democracy, um, something like that can happen. There was always a part of me that said, like, no, that is not the way this story is going to end. And the people of West Virginia, activists that I have been speaking to throughout the past two years, never gave up. They never let down on the pressure on Joe Manchin. His colleagues in the Senate never let down on the pressure. And I think that the reality of our climate situation, um, with record temperatures across the globe, with wildfires and storms, um, made it clear that he was not going to be the one to stand alone against the future of life as we know it on the planet. And so this is the largest investment in climate action that the U.S. government has ever taken. It looks like it's going to hit about four fifths of the target of the original Build Back Better uh, proposal. Um, And, you know, it's a huge first start. Um, And if we can get it signed into law, obviously, right, that's until we're sitting in the Rose Garden celebrating, I I don't want to, you know, I I don't want to count our chickens. but, But I think it is for me a reminder that change is harder. Uh, than we often like to imagine. And therefore, we need to have a lot more persistence.
2: Mm -hmm. Um, Speaking of persistence, so I listened to episode two of the podcast this morning. And it is this fascinating story about environmental justice in Memphis, Tennessee. Can you give us just the backstory and kind of the lesson from your time there? you, You hit the road and you were, you know, going to States, meeting with real people, and it sounded pretty inspiring.
1: Yeah. So... The whole idea of the Some of Us, the podcast is to kind of pick up where the book left off. The book left off with this idea that because racism and our politics and our policymaking has a cost for everyone, that people coming together across race to actually put aside our divisions and gain from the collective power that comes with collective action, um, is going to be the ticket to us winning big things. And in fact, it's the only way we can push back against the powerful forces that want to keep us divided. And so I wanted to go around the country, particularly in this moment, when frankly, all of us feel somewhere between frustration and despair about Mm -hmm. the fact that getting a trifecta wasn't the end of, um, wasn't the last fight we would have to fight, right? right? Um, uh, And I just found All of these stories of ordinary people, I mean, really, like the the protagonist in the story in Memphis is an executive assistant at um, at a nonprofit, uh, a retired uh, social worker. Um, You know, like it's just ordinary people who see an injustice and take a small risk and then take a bigger risk and then encourage other people to take risks. And they do it together. So in Memphis, still one of the most segregated cities uh, in the country there was a case of real environmental injustice the black neighborhoods namely this neighborhood called Boxtown, um was you know polluted around all sides and there was a new pipeline that came to town the pipeline company said we're going to build a pipeline and we're going to cite it through what one of the contract agents accidentally let slip he said we're going to cite it through this neighborhood because it's the path of least resistance yikes right so that's the it's true, right? Historically, right? It mm-hmm. has been the easiest way to get a toxin placed somewhere is to do it in a neighborhood with low political capital. And those neighborhoods exist because of long histories of segregation. Mm-hmm. But this community decided to fight back. And then on the white part of town, which frankly was not going to have a pipeline running through their backyards, it there were people who woke up to the fact that it could threaten the water system of the city, there's this huge natural resource called an aquifer under Memphis that gives it some of the sweetest water in the world.
2: They love their water. They people love their water. They're obsessed about the with water. water. It's like, is this whiskey? What are you people talking about? It's water. <laughs>
1: <laughs> I tasted it. It is really good water okay. right out of okay. the tap. And so they're was really this unprecedented Black Memphis, White Memphis coming together to build this cross-racial coalition called Memphis Community Against the Pipeline. And they won. And you, you know, as one of the characters says, you don't fight oil and gas, you don't beat right. oil and gas. Right. And yet they did. They won. Yeah. They stopped the pipeline.
2: And I love how you there's a young activist named Justin Pearson, you spent a lot of time with. And it was fascinating to hear him talk about how. His activism was inspired during, you know, the, the mid of twenty twenty when the George Floyd protests were happening. It just shows how like these movements can become a spark that ignite in all these different places across the country. It's really inspiring to hear him talk. Yeah. Um, and look a big lesson from your work, you know, the the podcast, the book, you know, a lot of the writing you've done, is that racism hurts everyone, right? Yeah. And an oil pipeline goes through a black community in Memphis, it could poison the well, literally figuratively for for everyone in the city. And so the solution to stopping it is this multiracial coalition. And I thought it was just so poignant and fitting that you start the episode by talking about Dr. Martin Luther King yeah. because the last big movement he was leading was called the Poor People's Campaign, which was this effort to bring together a multiracial group of low-income people to pass uh, anti-poverty legislation. And then obviously he was murdered. I mm-hmm. think it just sort of spoke to the fact that racism is this individual you know evil uh and feeling people have but also it can be a tool used by these powerful interests to preserve the status quo um yeah. by dividing us and it was just an amazing story i thought
1: oh thank you yeah i um memphis is where dr king was assassinated and so when i think of memphis that's what i think of i think of of april 4th the day he was taken from us and um and it was amazing to hear Um, you know, not all of it made it into the tape, right? Uh, But, you know, here each of the characters reflect on where they were during Mm -hmm. the sanitation workers strike, which was the final um, uh, sort of set of protests that Dr. Mm -hmm. King was there to participate in um, and where those characters were when he died. And, you know, the Poor People's Campaign to me is emblematic of the promise of American movement building throughout our history, The elite has used racist beliefs, us versus them, zero sum scapegoating in order to convince white people that they have more in common with the wealthy class of mostly white folks than they do with other people uh, who are also struggling, who happen Mm -hmm. to be people of color. That is a theme that is more prevalent now in our politics in the era of Trumpism and the swing of white working class voters away from the party of the New Deal um, than it has been in my lifetime. That is sort of, in my mind, the sort of single most defining feature of our politics today. And so throughout the podcast, as some of us I do go mostly actually to red and purple states and talk to people who are trying to cross those divides and trying to build a sense of collective action on the things that matter to everybody, black, white, or brown, clean water, um, higher pay at, at low paid jobs, um, better funded schools.
2: Yeah. I mean, I'm curious what you, what you learned about what you think the most effective activism is or the most effective strategies, because... You know, there, there historically are a lot of groups that focus on one issue and that's great and they've done amazing work, but you also see this growing trend of making issues as broad and intersectional as possible. And so, you know, what that means is some people might say, well, like gun control is really a healthcare issue or, you know, like X ostensibly controversial social issue is actually about Y ostensibly controversial social issue. And, you know, I often substantially agree, but I can't mm-hmm. decide if that is confusing framing If it is um, bringing groups together, or has the potential of shrinking your possible base of support, because you're Mm -hmm. saying this thing is also that thing, and you have Mm -hmm. to agree with this and that to fight for this, I I, I hope I'm I'm not I'm not saying specifics. I don't want to like single out any movements, but I'm curious what your take is there. (sighs)
1: So my take is this: the single most powerful force in changing someone's consciousness is person to person relational organizing. Mm-hmm. And you know what i'm an example I'm thinking of right now is um, a woman named Bridget Hughes who is in a, an episode that's coming up, a Kansas City episode about uh poverty work, about she's a fast food worker um, and she had the kind of like conservative white working class consciousness blaming, you know immigrants for taking good jobs and thinking that Black people were lazy, and yet herself working for her lifetime in low-paid, minimum-wage, fast-food work. And when she first got approached about the fight for 15, she was like, there's no way they're ever going to pay people like me $15 an hour. And um, she's a character in the book, and I went back to Kansas City to spend more time Uh, for the episode uh, in the podcast. And I really got to understand how it actually was seeing another worker from another fast food company, but across town who was black, take a risk because he had the same life as her, you know, Mm -hmm. Um, for all intents and purposes, the same economic struggles. And he took this risk to organize and he was just as afraid as she was to go out on strike. And it was in seeing him do that, that gave her courage. And I just really feel like in some ways, activism about the things that really matter the most, like there was nothing more important to her as a mom than being able to keep the lights on and put food on the table. And that's what really mattered. And Sure. Once she was in the movement and organizing all the time and volunteering, you know, she could think about other issues. But like you do have to actually get at for if you really want to organize, not people who are have a lot of leisure time, (laughs) um, but people who are really busy and struggling yeah sure then you have to go at what is the source of the pain what is the thing that can totally transform their lives if you fix it and you don't do it online um and you don't do it through politicians speaking you really do it through one-to-one relational organizing and movement building
2: it's funny how that is still the most effective way despite all the tools despite all the promises of online this and digital that um So I teed you up at the beginning as a hopeful person. We're about 100 days out from the midterms. By the way, go to votesaveamerica.com slash 100 days if you want to get involved. Um, Are you feeling hopeful about these midterms? What are you thinking? How are we going to do? Because you worked on a bunch of campaigns, too.
1: Yeah, so. (laughs) I'm feeling more hopeful than I was 30 days ago, 60 days ago, 90 days ago. I think that the more time passes, the better the polling is going to be, and the more likely it is that it's going to not be the kind of blowout that a lot of the indicators, you know, like inflation and a top of the ticket um, or top of the party approval numbers would suggest. We can all prognosticate, but what it comes down to is, are, are we volunteering? Are we working as hard as we did in 2020? And it's- right feels impossible to ask people and ourselves to do that again, because it feels like we left it all out on the field. Um, But there is no reason that this radical fringe Republican party should capture any form of governing power at the national level ever again in our society, Mm -hmm. um, except if we let them, basically.
2: Yeah, no, I totally agree. I mean, I think the biggest biggest challenge is not necessarily like inflation or Joe Biden's approval. It's like, okay, so we hope that this huge bill will be passed in a couple, in a week or two uh, by the Senate. We then have to communicate with people in the country about what's in it, what the Democratic Party's been doing, the choice, the extremity of the MAGA movement, the mm-hmm. extremity of, you know, Trump judges overturning Roe v.ersus Wade and ripping away abortion rights from women in, in all these states. And there's just no guarantee these days, I think, that people hear that information, right? I mean, some yeah. of them go to like Breitbart for their news. Mm-hmm. Some of them don't watch news. You yeah. know, and like ha- reaching those people, it might just be through knocking on their doors or this relational organizing. They get a text from their cousin, like whatever it might be, and and that's where the hard work comes in.
1: That's right, and and what and the piece that's missing in that is that means that the Democratic Party activists, the progressive activists, have to be active again um, because we're the ones doing the door knocking, we're the ones sending those texts, right? We're the ones signing up for those volunteer shifts, and what I think that the potential breakthrough on the Climate tax uh, on the Biden agenda, basically on the Democratic agenda, um, could do is help to give us that crucial piece, which is make us feel like the Democratic Party is worth um, fighting for.
2: Yeah, that's right. Because they, right. they've fought for us. Yeah, we're the ones we've been waiting for. As uh, I don't someone, know, what you're talking someone about. once <laughs> said. Yeah, Barack Obama once <laughs> said. Uh, Heather, the, the podcast is fantastic. It's the sum of us. It's available now on Spotify. Great to see you again. Thank you for doing the show and uh, congratulations. Thank you, thank you so much. La- labor of love, you can tell. Absolutely. Thank you again, Heather McGee, for joining the show. Uh, thank you, Adisu, who's still here. And sometimes we just leave little Easter eggs of, of bullshit in the outro. You know, it's where, yeah, here. Okay. Here's what topic um i'm a celtics fan you're a warriors fan amen and that go Dubs! Good. champions the champions
3: right. uh the four-time champion golden state warriors in fact i don't know if we're going to be able to put this on uh
2: mm-hmm.
3: on camera but i just put on my uh warriors championship hat that i bought that's at the wearing, finals
2: uh, that's actually a, you guys have cool gear too that's one of the annoying things about it it's like good color it's a good logo have you been to the new stadium i did
3: i went so <laughs> i got covid uh at the end of April during the playoffs. And I was be, I rightly, I think was being pretty cautious with my young son. And, uh, once I recovered from COVID, I was like, okay, I got to take advantage of these antibodies. So I went to a couple of games in out. the playoffs. Yeah. So I did. <laughs> uh, and then by the way, I got COVID again a couple of weeks ago. So oh, no, stay masked. This BA okay. five is not taking any prisoners. Um, Shit. Uh, yeah, twice in the last couple of months, but, uh, but yes, I went to like three or four playoff games and, uh, it was awesome it was awesome honestly to be back in the crowd with folks i think we all missed that but awesome to see my team win a championship again and beat yours and to see draymond troll the shit out of the celtics afterwards
2: he was 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 very mean very mean. mean. no dc tried to send me like a nice note checking in on other things in life and i was like before you say something about that series i don't want to fucking hear it Uh, okay well that's a sufficiently painful outro so thanks everyone for listening and uh we'll be back on monday Hot Save America is a Crooked Media production. The executive producer is Michael Martinez. Our senior producer is Andy Gardner-Bernstein. Our producer is Haley Muse, and Olivia Martinez is our associate producer. It's mixed and edited by Andrew Chadwick. Kyle Seglin and Charlotte Landis sound engineer the show. Thanks to Tanya Sominator, Sandy Gerard, Hallie Kiefer, Ari Schwartz, Andy Taft, and Justine Howe for production support. And to our digital team, Elijah Cohn, Phoebe Bradford, Milo Kim, and Amelia Montu.